Well, when I was a kid, I, uh, I had a lot of cravings and a lot of likes, but one of the things I loved was breakfast cereal. Um, you know, I, I liked it because it was crunchy, but what I loved most about breakfast cereal, some of you can relate to that, was the hidden prizes in the box. And uh, growing up, six of seven kids, uh, it was always finders keepers in our house. And so what I did is I strategically placed myself near the door when my mom came home from the store with groceries. Now, lest you think uh, it was an altruistic motive to lighten her load, it was rather a selfish motive to line my pockets. Because inside there was this prize, you know, sometimes there was a secret decoder ring or a magic trick was my favorite, or baseball cards. I was into baseball cards, and I couldn't wait to get my prize. Because the box promised me a surprise. And I remember the very first time, (laughs) it was a traumatic moment. When I opened the box with great excitement and kept looking and did not find the prize. You been there? I mean, it was one of the most traumatic moments of my childhood. I don't know if I, I can't believe I survived. But right then and there, I learned from cereal boxes as a little tyke that promises are often broken. This is an inconvenient truth as a six-year-old, and I'll tell you what, as I get older, it's more of an inconvenient truth than ever, because somehow cynicism sort of percolates in my heart about promises. There's something about as we live life longer, we hear the story, promises are made to be broken, and we're like, yeah, right, I can agree with that one. Advertisers promise us this great product, sometimes there's all kinds of little fine print underneath but they don't deliver. Guarantees often mean little. Politicians, as important as that vocation is, let me assure you, um, they make all kinds of promises to us to get elected. Oh, we're not going to raise taxes. And what do they do when they move into office? They raise taxes. And I do lots of weddings, which is just a super delight to my calling, my vocational calling. And uh, yesterday we had a wonderful wedding, and I stood before this Barbie and Ken, perfect couple, beautiful couple, who made some big promises. Some of you remember that if you're married, some big, humongous promises. And some of you over life have realized that some of those big promises that are made at the altar, they're not kept. So as we go through life, we realize that promises are often broken. We live in a world of broken promises, don't we? And yet, the Christian faith is founded upon promises. The whole thing is built on promises. And so the question for the thoughtful reflector on faith, and wherever your journey is, is God makes a lot of big promises if you've read it all, the Bible at all. The question is, God is a big promise maker, but is He a big promise keeper? Does God keep His promises? Now, last week we began our wonderful journey that I've, I'm very excited about, I know many of you are, called Open Here, One Story, One Year. And if you're newer to Christ's community, we are taking the whole year as a congregation, as a multi-site congregation, to walk through Genesis to Revelation. That's the first book and last book, all the way through the big story. Last week, we began our year quest by looking at the very beginning of the story in Genesis 1 through 3. And if you're here, we know that God speaks into creation. God is the main character of the story. We want to keep that in mind throughout the whole year. And we remember last week, if you were here, that 
two things jump out in our story as we enter into it. Once was a time when it all began. There was a time when it all began. There was also, that's Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, there was a time when it all went wrong. And boy, did it get wrong. Genesis 3, God's masterpiece creation is profoundly corrupted. And the question of the story as we continue through Genesis this morning is the question is, God spoke the world into existence. The world took a big nosedive. And if you've been reading open here with us each day, you'll notice as you walk through Genesis 4 all the way to 12 that things go from bad to worse. Bad news. This creation, humanity is just going... And the tension in the story is this. God created a good world and went to smash, as C.S. Lewis beautifully says. But what will God do with it? Will he abandon it or will he restore it? Enter the next main character. We were introduced to the main character, God, last week and Adam and Eve. Now as we go to Genesis, we are introduced to Noah. Amazing story if you've read the Bible, but the idea is that God intervenes. And Noah is given grace. And through Noah, the world is going to be restored and rescued. God makes a big promise to Noah. You remember that? That the world will one day be fully restored and not destroyed. He gives a sign with that promise, the rainbow. And the story continues. As we make our way connecting the little stories with the big story and our story this year, we now come to the next main character in Genesis. His name is Abram, and Abram is often understood uh, with his later name, Abraham. And the tension of the story now is God's going to make some humongous promises to Abram. And the tension in Genesis from 12 on is God going to come through on them. God is a big promiser. And the tension woven into the brilliant story as it develops in Genesis, is God a promise keeper? So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 17. Let's explore Abraham's journey of faith together. This is where his story begins. It actually begins a Genesis writer in Genesis chapter 11 at the end of it. We find Abraham's family. His father's name is Terah. We also are told by the Genesis writer, as the story continues, is that we are in about the Middle Bronze Era, archaeologists describe. We know that from language and structure of the Hebrew text. It's about 2000 B.C. by its structure. Abraham is living in the highest cultural context of the day. There were two of Egypt and Mesopotamia. He is living in Mesopotamia. This is like modern-day Iraq today. It was a very sophisticated culture. Very polytheistic, very pagan. Now, Abram grew up in this context, and you'll notice this little pyramid down here from the map under Babylon is Ur, and we're told this is where his family comes from. His family was upper class. They were very wealthy, very educated. And somewhere we're told in the book of Acts, God begins to speak into their family, the one true God, the monotheistic God. And we don't know why, and Genesis doesn't tell us, all of a sudden they scoot from Ur up to Haran. You see that where it says Padam Aram. It's like northern Syria today. Now, why is this important? 
The Genesis writer gives the playground of the faith of Abraham, the backstory on a geographical framework, very important to the text. And what happens here is you have two cities, Ur and Haran, and both of them are highly sophisticated cities. It would be like moving from New York City, perhaps the epicenter of culture. I know if you're from L.A., you don't like that, but New York City is sort of important. But it'd be like moving from New York City to Chicago. Not exactly in the sticks, you follow me? So Abram and his family moved from New York to Chicago. It's just like that. They settle into a very high culture area in Haran, and now we enter into Genesis chapter 12. All of a sudden, God speaks to their family, particularly Abram, and calls him in this amazing, humongous promise in Genesis 12. And you will notice the Genesis writer now marks the story by time. Abraham, in Genesis 12, is 75. This is not sort of just an incidental detail. And as we walk from 12 to 15 to 17 in this story that if you've read this week, if you've been in open here, you will notice that there are markers of Abram's age. Hmm. 75 in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God gives him a humongous promise. The promise is threefold. Remember the Old Testament Hebrew loves threes, okay? Very important to remember. He promises Abram that God will give him a new land. Not only a new land, but tons of kids. That's the idea. Descendants galore, grandkids, great-grandkids, just tons to be nations. And a blessing. That means a lasting legacy. All of that wound up in one. A land seed and a blessing. Wow. The challenge is, is that God tells Abram to go. And the tension builds. He's 75. There's no kiddos around. And God tells Abram to leave his place. Now, think about this. No Garmin Nuvi. No Rand McNally old-style atlas. That's my backup. No Holiday Inn reservations. No real estate agents. Nothing. Genesis 12, God says to Abram, go south. Now, if you think that uh, men hate to stop and ask for directions, most of us hate going out with no idea where we're going. And this is the story of Abraham and his bride, Sarah. Think of Sarah. Would you walk in Abraham and Sarah's shoes for a moment with me? Uh, Ladies, if you're married or have been married or will be married, think of this. Imagine your husband coming home from work, bursting through the door and saying, sweetheart, we're moving. And the kicker of all is, God told me. And you're thinking, he didn't tell me. Right. And not only that, you're thinking, has this guy lost his mind? And he says, we're moving in just a few days. That means packing up everything. No, actually, in this case, it means leaving everything behind because they're living in a very palatial place. All the comforts, a home, a beautiful, high-class setting. Not only that, it means saying goodbye to your doctor. I mean, your hairdresser. Saying goodbye to all your friends. 
And then you look at your husband and say, where are we going? He says, uh, I don't really know. You don't know? I mean, can you imagine being a fly on the wall in the conversation with Abram and Sarah? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. But Sarah is an unsung hero here. Because the text in Genesis 12, as Abraham's story is launched in the story, she's a trooper. She's been living in comfort, a home, all the security, and she goes with her husband and spends time in a Bedouin tent out in the sticks, having no idea where they're going. You call this a great adventure? This is great madness. From Genesis 12 up to 16, it's the story of Abraham, if you read it, is, and Sarah, it's like a story of Raiders of the Lost Ark or Born Conspiracy. Twists and turns, tensions, struggles. And the tension overlying all the story is, will God make good on his promises? Now remember, as we come into Genesis 17, God had made a lot of big promises. He promised him a new land. Here you are, Sarah and Abraham, waking up in the sticks. Nothing around you but desert most of the time. Your tent is empty. They're in their mid-70s. You talk about an empty nest. There's no pitter-patter of low feet. No child to love. And every month, Sarah is faced with the excruciating disappointment that God had promised something and there was nothing. And the writer of Genesis marks the time for us to feel the weightiness of waiting. 12, 75 years. As Genesis 16 ends, we see Abraham is 86. Sarah's right there with him. That's pretty old. 11 years to wait at this point, if my math is right. And then as we enter into Genesis 17, we see Abraham now, or Abram is 99 years old. So as we enter this text, there's been a whole lot of waiting going on. There's just tension in the heart of Abraham and Sarah. They've tried to take things in their own hand. They're waiting. And as Genesis 17 opens up, God gives this big promise, an even bigger promise than they can imagine. Look with me at the text. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Here in verse 1, God does two things. He reveals himself in a unique way to Abram, a compelling revelation, and then, secondly, a compelling invitation. You will notice, if you're a student of Scripture, that this is the first time in Torah or Genesis where this name for God appears. God reveals himself uniquely at this point in our story, and El Shaddai is the Hebrew word. It means power. One who is powerful enough Here's the connection with the word in the story. Not only to speak the universe into existence, but he is reminding Abram, I am the same God who created the stars, who made the stars. I'm the same God who's making you this promise. That's the connection. Now, we have a wonderful Old Testament scholar that captures this really well. Dr. Walt Kaiser uh, really hits the uh, ball out of the park here. He says, this name, El Shaddai, stressed the might and power of God. It indicated God's ability to master nature, thereby linking together, notice this, this is the storyline, linking together his work in creation and now his overworking power in history to affect his plan. 
Not only does God give Abram a new compelling revelation about himself, now notice the invitation he gives to Abram. He says to Abram, if you have your text open, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. What is he doing? He is inviting Abram back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the life Adam and Eve once had in the garden, but were lost because of sin. And if your Christian tradition allows this and you have a paper Bible open or electronic Bible open, next to it put the garden life, back to the garden life. Because what is going on here is that what Adam and Eve lost, God is inviting Abraham and Sarah to recover. It is the life Abram was created to live. It was the life he longed to live. It is the life you and I were designed to live. And there are two big components of that life. One is intimacy. Notice the text. The English says, walk before me. See the word before me? The Hebrew text is literally, walk in my face. Why is that important? Because in the Garden of Eden, because of sin, Adam and Eve, out of love for them, were pushed out of the face of God, the presence of God. So, God invites Abram back into this intimate space with himself. Not only that, God says to him, be blameless. He's saying, Abram, come back to the garden life. Blamelessness often in English has the connotation of perfection, and that's not the idea in the story. You know Abram's story and Sarah don't, aren't always perfect. It is a picture of integralness, of wholeness. It is a contrast of brokenness with blameless. The broken world God is going to restore. A broken life He's going to restore to blamelessness. The best translation here is be whole, be integral as I designed you to be integral in the garden. The big story we are going to look at this year brings this integral life, this life that God designed for us to live, the life you long to live, the life I want to live. And in Abram, we begin to see its trajectory as it points ultimately to the son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus. The good news of the gospel points for us, for each one of us, to a life that is not alienation from God, but intimacy with him. Not of brokenness, but of wholeness. The good news of the gospel invites us back to the garden life, the life you and I were designed to experience. Christ community, we spend a lot of time in our spiritual formation and teaching talking about this text, the integral life that God created you to live, that Jesus has come and died on a cross and rose from the dead, that you can live now because of his grace. Our Razor's Edge Pathway helps unpack this core idea, and I encourage you, if you've not taken Razor's Edge to do it, you can also start listening online to the lectures if you want an appetizer. This is the life you were created to live. It's the life that Abraham is invited to live. It's the life that Abraham looks forward to living as he looks to Christ in the future. A life of intimacy and integrity, but not just that. The third emphasis is a life of influence. That which Adam and Eve were given to have dominion over the world is now going to be restored in Sarah and Abraham's story. A life of extraordinary legacy. And notice as this text goes, it's built around the repetition of the word covenant. Do you see that? Covenant, covenant, covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is more than a contract. A 
covenant is a promise. There's no collateral. It's all based on character of the one giving it. It is permanent. It is binding. And it's the heart of the rest of this text as we move quickly through verses 3 to 10. What do we see about this idea of a covenant? Let's unpack it just a little bit. In verses 3 through 10, we get this description. And the picture is, is that God is promising by His own character and power that through Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. This has a global ramifications. His plan is being launched, and it now includes you and me. Notice verse 3. Upon hearing God's word, can you imagine... See, God has always been present. It's not that God isn't present. There's a Hebrew word used to describe that God suddenly lowers the scales in Abram's eyes, his dimming eyes, and he reveals more of himself. God has always been there. So this language of appearing is just God is lowering the scales of Abraham's dim eyes. And God says to Abram, walk in my face. That's literally what he says. And notice in verse 3 Abraham's response. Do you see it? He falls on his face. When encountering El Shaddai, it was not a heady moment. It was a humble moment. He falls on his face, prostrate before the ground, and God just pours it on over his heart. Notice the building of God's promise. This is a bigger and bigger and greater promise. And it just pours forth in verses 4 all the way through the rest of the chapter. Abraham is flat on his face before a holy God. God just pours it out on him. Look at this. Verse 4, he antes up the promise. He says, you, I talked to you in 12 about nations. You're going to be, Father, a multitude of nations. And it's a myriad of myriads. In verse 5, Abram's given a brand new name in that cultural context that was important because everyone who ran into Abraham would now see he is a person of a lasting legacy. But in verses 6 through 9, it's not only a temporal legacy, it's an eternal one. Do you see that? Future generations. The son of the promise will come. This is an eternal promise to Abram. And God keeps repeating himself. Do you notice this in these verses? <laughs> I mean, it's like a long-winded preacher. I know there's none of those around here. Why is it? Is it because Abraham is sort of getting old? He can't hear God? Like, God, he's on his, on his face. God, I can't hear you. Please say that again. I, I don't think so. Because Abraham is like you and me. We need to hear this over and over again that God is committed to us and he'll promise and he'll make good on him. So God is just repeating it, repeating it, and then last, he gives him a sign. <laughs> Not a repetition, but he gives him a sign. Like, no, this sign is the sign of circumcision in verse 10. It is a sign, a bodily sign, a covenant that God is going to come through with what he promised. That's the idea. Every day, bodily, that would be a reminder that God is totally committed to them, that he will make good on his promise. Not only that, the covenant sign ties to the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And it is a bodily sign tied to human reproduction, right? That through Abraham and Sarah, what was lost in Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah will accomplish, will accomplish through his, their, their seed, their generations. Is that beautiful? 
And it also reminded God's covenant people, don't miss this, of sexual purity in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Circumcision was a big deal. Now, Abraham and Sarah's story does not end here, of course, and I encourage you to continue to read it. It's really fun, uh, at least for us to read it. There's all kinds of struggles and waitings and twists and turns, and Abraham, can you imagine, buries his precious bride, and they're given a sliver for the first time of the hope of the land. She's buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron in, in Canaan, the land of promise, just a sliver of hope sliver of the promise being fulfilled, and Abram dies at 175. That's an old dude. It's an amazing story. The Apostle Paul looks back in writing to the Romans, looks at Abraham and Sarah, focuses on Abraham, and this is what he says about their legacy of faith. He says, and I'm using NIV here. I like NIV's translation better. It says, yet he did not waver through unbelief. Notice this. Regarding what? The promise of God but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham's story now moves to the bigger story, right? We're going to see that next week. But Abraham's story intersects with our story. The covenant God made to Abraham, he made with you and me in mind. For one day, that the seed of Abraham, the Messiah Jesus, would come to this ravaged planet. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he would make possible for us to, what? Walk before God in intimacy and be whole in Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb are history's ultimate exclamation point that God keeps his promises. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be trusted with everything. And isn't it amazing that even in the Old Testament text, Abraham is saved from the ravages of sin and death by the grace of God and faith. Notice in Genesis 15, 6, we see this. We see it. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith and so are we. Sometimes I think when we talk about faith, we sort of gloss over. You ever like that? Sometimes we think living by faith is some radical idea. But to live without Faith, or to attempt to, is the most radical idea imaginable. Why? Because Adam and Eve were designed in the garden to live by faith, dependent faith. Faith, not just sight and hearing and sound and taste, was the ultimate sense in creation. Faith in a trustworthy God, dependent faith. That's how Adam and Eve were designed to live. That's how you and I are designed to live. That's how Abram and Sarah were designed to live. And God invites us to live into the life we were designed to live. And the Hebrew writer says it's impossible to please God without faith. Why? Because we were designed to live that way. The most unnatural thing is to not live by faith in the Holy God. John Stott, brilliant scholar who died last year, says this in his book, The Radical Disciples, his last published book to the world. His last words, what were they? 
dear Dr. Stott said this, I come back to dependence as the most characteristic attitude of the radical disciple. God, quote, designed our life in such a way that we should be dependent. Living by faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, is how you were designed to live, how I was designed to live. It is the path to human flourishing. And in Abraham's life, we see it. So what are some lessons we learned this morning from Abraham's life? Clearly, it's a journey of extraordinary faith. But some of us think faith is sort of like this wishful thinking. Oh, I just hope it's true. But biblical faith is not wishful thinking. It's promise thinking. There are two aspects of faith that I think are woven into the tapestry of Abraham's life, and they've been very much a part of my own experience, and I think for most of us. And two big truths I'd like you to consider of reflection this morning. First, God's promises are as good as gold. We all live by faith. Every one of us lives by faith. Trying to live without faith is like trying to live without oxygen. It's impossible. Remember, we were created to live by faith. That is integral to our design. And it's all a part of our redemption and the future new heaven and new earth that is coming. The question is, what do we place our faith in? It's the object of our faith. Ourself, our own intellect, strength, our friends at school, our approval, our net worth, our wealth, our family, our government. These are all good things, but they are faulty objects of our faith. God's promises are the gold standard of the currency of reality. God's promises are as good as gold. I remember as a kid, and if you grew up in a Christian tradition and you're a little more mature like me, that's an age, by the way. There was a hymn I remember singing as a kid. And uh, I liked the hymn because it was upbeat. A lot of our hymns were kind of slow. This one's called, and I won't sing it, I promise you, Standing on the Promises of God. And we go, standing, standing. Well, I guess I was going to sing. Standing, standing. We were yelling. We'd stand up, get excited. This little kid was really cool. It was some action in my church. But I love one of the stanzas. It says, standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. So what are you standing on this morning? What are you banking on? Where's the currency of your life? Abraham tells us God's promises are as good as gold. But also, I think Abraham and Sarah's story of faith raise another really important truth, and that is trust and tension go hand in hand. Uh, Liz and I spent our 30th anniversary at Niagara Falls Never been there before. It was awesome. We were on the Canadian side. And the Canadian side, you could walk right up to the edge. If you've been there, and this massive water pours over into the abyss. I mean, the power overwhelms you. The spray of the water comes at you. And I'm like, I'm this close to sudden death. There's a certain exhilaration when you're around that. And I remember going back home and hearing that Nick Walenda 
This tightrope walker walked across it. You remember that? It was past May. I'm like watching this on YouTube going, awesome! I can't imagine crossing that tightrope over Niagara Falls, having just been there. Exhilaration, fear, tension, that's part of it. That's the picture of faith that I see woven into the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're doing some serious tightrope walking. There are tensions all over. Two big ones, two big ones. First is this, bold, risky faith. That's um, going without knowing where you're going. There are times you are called by God to step out and take bold steps of faith. I don't care if it's a business, whatever it is, it's like, oh my. Abraham and Sarah was pulling up all the stakes, leaving everything they knew, all the comfort, all the, all the friends, everything, their beautiful home, and they go in this little stinking tent. Bold, risky faith forces us out of our, out of our comfort zone. And it always raises, if you've been there, scary, what ifs, what if, what if, what if, what if. And it also meets you with exhilaration. Lord, what's next, what's next, what's next? Christ's community was birthed in this kind of faith. This is our heritage. 25 years ago, almost now, Liz and I left Dallas. I guess we didn't have a newbie then. We We didn't know kind of where we were going, but we were just heading north. All we had was a big God. That's all you need. Not always what all you want. Through the years, God has called Christ's community to take big, bold steps of faith, risky steps of faith, because we're a big God church with a big God mission. It's who we are. Perhaps God will continue to help us take big steps of faith. Perhaps he's challenging you this morning in your life. Maybe as the new year starts, the Lord is prompting you to take the step of exploring the Christian faith. You've really not given it a good shot. Maybe today's the day. Maybe you're considering starting a business or a new line or buying a new company. Maybe you're deciding on a college, waiting for those letters to come, you know. Maybe you're deciding and wondering if you should go to college or go back to school or change your career. And the fear of failure and the paralysis of analysis is holding you back. God is saying, go. You can trust him. But the second kind of tension is so woven also into the fabric of Abraham and Sarah. It's woven into the fabric of followers of Jesus, of faith. Not only bold, risky faith that means going without knowing, but hang tough faith. That is, you wait and you wait, but you don't have it yet. Abraham and Sarah, their stories, you look at it, they're just waiting, waiting, waiting forever. It seems. And as a congregation, we've experienced that. Sometimes God has taken us in a bold step. Sometimes he says, slope, time to wait. I remember we spent almost 10 years in Overland Trail Middle School. It was like we were in a holding pattern, waiting for God to give us the place of gathering. But when God's timing was right, he made it known in miraculous ways. Hard to be in a holding pattern, isn't it? God often has us there. God is 
Seldom early, but he's never late. Maybe you're in a holding pattern this morning. Maybe that's where God has you. You're waiting for something you want that's really bad, and you've been waiting and waiting. Hang tough faith is hard work. You may be waiting for a spouse. You may be waiting for a child. You may be waiting for a job or a better job. You may be waiting for that acceptance letter from that college every day. You may be waiting for a relationship to be reconciled in your family. Or you may be waiting for an unanswered prayer that just seems to keep being unanswered about your children or a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. In that tension of waiting, the story of Holy Scripture in Abram's life is that you can trust God when you wait. Trust Him. Last week, Liz and I had the great joy of going to our next-door neighbor's house. Our next-door neighbors are Woody and Jonna LaRue, who are members of our congregation, and they welcomed into their home little Liam LaRue. It's hard for me to talk about this without tears, tears of joy, because my bride held little Liam after they brought him home from the hospital in her hands, in her arms, and we all had tears of joy. Woody and Jonna's journey has been long and hard, waiting, waiting, and waiting. And the joy of that moment, I'm still savoring. And as we had tears in our eyes welcoming the newest member of Christ's community into our family, I was reminded that God is not only a promise maker, he is a promise keeper. God is not only great, he is awesomely good. You can trust him. He designed you that way. He redeemed you that way. It's the path to human flourishing. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, teach us to walk by faith. Teach us to be the people you called us to be. For you are a great and good God. We bank on you. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name.